this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, I, I look at this from a, like a sort of a practical approach. Jason and I, I think, have the same or similar approach on how we treat patients. And like he mentioned, in the fracture patients, it's, you know, those who have a lytic lesion with an associated fracture, let's say compression deformity, the cement, you know, stabilization with ablation is really a, it really is and should be a first-line therapy. And radiation therapy can augment that for sure. But the reality is, unless you stabilize them, they will probably go on to fracture adjacent levels and they will not get significant pain relief by just radiation alone. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, which is committed to all things IR and endovascular. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use to listen or leave us a review on iTunes. We value your feedback and are always looking for ways to improve. Before we dive into our topic, I'd like to thank our sponsor. Today's episode is sponsored by OsteoCool Radio Frequency Ablation by Medtronic. OsteoCool is internally cool radio frequency ablation technology that can be used in the spine and peripheral bone. Its dual probe capabilities allow you to approach a lesion with two probes simultaneously for tumor coverage. Know where the heat is going and map out your ablation zone before treatment. You'll receive a controlled ablation as the generator automatically measures impedance and modulates power to deliver energy consistently. Visit medtronic.com slash osteocool to learn more. So today we're talking about radiofrequency ablation of spine lesions and I'm honored to be joined today by Dr. Sonny Bagla and Jason Levy to walk us through this. Gentlemen, thank you for taking the time away from your families to do this, although I'm sure you're spending plenty of time with your families right now with uh, COVID going on. Thanks so much, Mike, for having us. Uh, it's great to be on. And uh, for Jason and I, we normally get to see each other pretty frequently. Uh, this is another way that we get to connect with you. Uh, so it's a good, it's good to actually be on this podcast and be talking about something other than COVID for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can change that very quickly. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I'm actually, yeah, I'm privileged to have already learned about spinal ablation from Dr. Bagless. Sonny, the last time I saw you was in New York for the one-day Medtronic course on OsteoCool, which I highly recommend to any listeners looking for a deeper dive into the topic. Um, but today I thought we'd stick to the basics. And to begin, I wanted to ask the two of you about the Opus One trial the two of you led. Um, so, um, Sonny, do you want to begin by just kind of telling me a little bit about the trial, when it started and, and where you're going from here? Sure, absolutely. So, um, you know, the Opus One study is a multi-center international study. Uh, there are 16 global sites uh, started over a year ago uh, with a plan to enroll uh, at least uh, 200 subjects around the world. Um, and Jason uh, has been not only the, the leading enroller uh, in the clinical study, but Jason's brought uh, an extensive experience he has in just spinal augmentation uh, and bone tumor ablation as a whole uh, to the team of investigators. And so um, as we were planning it, uh, the SIR meeting, we were planning on presenting our data from the first 100 patients, which will actually be the largest subset of patients in a prospective bone ablation trial uh, to be presented. And Jason was planning on presenting that data um, at the SIR meeting, which was scheduled obviously for this week. Dr. Levy, could you tell me uh, a bit about what you were planning to present this week? Absolutely. So our results were extremely encouraging. The, the primary endpoint was the worst pain score at three months. But what we were able to see was patients were actually seeing significant pain reduction at three days, one week, one month, three months. And it 
sustained pain relief up to six months after ablation and uh, uh, many times augmentation uh, post-ablation. Most of the subjects were in the thoracolumbar spine with uh, approximately 12% of the subjects involving pelvic uh, ablation with uh, cementoplasty in that subset. Our inclusion criteria included up to two sites that needed to be treated. So a patient theoretically could have multiple sites of disease, but only two required treatment, a Karnofsky score of 40 or better, and a pain score of at least four, although the vast majority of patients had pain scores considerably higher than that. Yeah, I think, you know, Mike, to Jason gave a great summary of the data. And what we found, uh, for those of you who've been doing, and obviously many listeners of Backtable have already been doing ablation, not just in soft tissue, but in bone, uh, thoracolumbar and peripheral bone. But uh, what we found is, you know, this data is robust, not just in the size, you know, or the quantity of patients that we have, um, but the length of time we followed them up, which was out to six months. Obviously, you're going to have a high attrition rate with patients who have metastatic disease. Sure. So a large number of patients will unfortunately move on. But that being said, the rapid improvement in pain, I think that's what we were really focused on is, you know, how quickly can you get these patients to improve? And, you know, with the downsides of, say, radiation in terms of the length of time it takes for a patient to get better after treatment and the number of visits that a patient has to make uh, in certain situations for, say, standard EBRT. Um, this allowed patients to get a very rapid improvement. In, in the current environment, this becomes even more important, you know, uh, where patients can get in and out and get one treatment and get palliated. And I think, Jason, you probably noticed the same thing, right, in your, in your clinical practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things also that was nice about it was that it wasn't really muddy data. So a lot of the other ablation trials have had significant numbers of patients that went on to get radiation therapy after in this first 106 patients, 100 of which we're reporting on, 14% of them actually ended up getting radiation up to the six-month timeframe. So that's, you know, pretty good data. But yeah, absolutely. Our center's results have been very fitting with the rest of the study in that the vast majority of patients are seeing pain relief already by three days. And many of them, similar to a traditional kyphoplasty, may see pain relief pretty immediately. So, you know, typically when I see a patient for other types of ablative therapy, I usually tell them that their pain's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And that may happen with this, but, you know, we did see a decent number of patients who were already getting pain relief within 24 hours. So it sounds like, yeah. I mean, it, go ahead. No, he thinks Mike, you're good. Uh, well, it sounds like it's, it, you know, both rapid improvement pain, but it's also durable. Um, you know, where do you guys see the trial going from here? You know, what, what's next in these, uh, you know, as you accrue the next hundred or so patients? So we've already actually enrolled, the enrollment had stopped. Um, Sonny, I believe it's 2,211 now. Is that right? 212? Yeah. So wow. we've crossed, yeah, we've crossed 200 patients and um, we didn't stopped enrollment, um, it was about, about probably a month or so, a month or so ago, um, because we more than met our primary endpoint, um, and we had over 200 patients in the study and, uh, just by pure volume of patients and the data, it's so overwhelming that there was probably no need to continue enrolling 
uh, beyond 200 and some odd patients. So at the time of submission to SIR uh, for presentation at the meeting, um, we had decided let's present on the first 100 subjects because we could at least take a snapshot of the data at this point and see how impressive it is. And, and like Jason mentioned, it, it is very impressive. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier, guys, you know, just about sort of this practical approach and not to bring things back to coronavirus. But, you know, in the, in the IR Everything world, comes back. Yeah, I know. It seems like it these days. But in the IR world, you know, it's funny. We have to um, consider what our role is in treating patients that perhaps don't need to be intubated or put under, say, high flow oxygen. And what's nice also about this procedure is many, use, many of you guys know this already because you do these procedures already in practice, is that the procedures can be performed under moderate sedation. And so... The patients don't need to be intubated and er worry about aerosolizing, um, you know, things like coronavirus. And I think obviously that takes uh, a lower risk profile across the board, not just with viral spread, but of course, just with overall anesthesia related risk. And so from a practical approach, uh, this type of procedure really has been um, very popular. It is invasive, of course, when you compare it to um, external beam radiation, I mean, there's no doubt about it. But uh, undoubtedly, there are some drawbacks with radiation that we can cover as well. Sure. Yeah, and, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry, I completely agree with Sonny. I mean, uh, as far as the sedation level uh, uh, of the patients I enrolled in the study, exactly zero of them required general anesthesia. And I'm, I'm pretty sure I can speak for Sonny as well. I don't believe he had any requiring general anesthesia as well. No, none, none whatsoever. So I think you bring up an important point. You know, this is uh, one of several options for pain palliation for patients with metastatic disease in the spine. Um, could the two of you help me get a better idea of where radio, radio frequency ablation should, sit, should fit in amongst the other therapies, particularly radiation therapy? Jason, you want to take that one first? Yeah, I'd love to. So right now, I mean, the reality is, is we're as interventional radiologists, and if you, you bring in some of the other treating physicians who do this, you know, spine orthopedics, et cetera, you know, we're probably seeing less than 5% of these patients nationwide, while the radiation oncologists are seeing the vast majority of these patients. So there's a couple of advantages this therapy holds over radiation. And these, again, at the end, in the end of the day, these are not mutually exclusive. I mean, they can be combined together, which I think I'll let Sonny talk about. But the bottom line is, is a, is a standalone treatment, the speed of, uh, of effectiveness is going to be clearly better with this than radiation, which many times requires multiple touch points if it's multi, if it's a multi-fraction, which almost always has become more of a standard of care. Um, and those can take three to eight weeks for pain relief as we're talking about about three days. Um, other advantages and, and, and kind of what I love about RFA technology with this is, you know, most of these patients, you know, skeletal metastasis can happen anywhere, but most of these patients metastasize in the axial weight bearing skeleton, right? So that's where cement becomes a huge, huge, plays a huge role because of mechanical stabilization and axial loading bones. So equally important to 
the therapy is not just the radiofrequency ablation, which ha has a, a major role, but the ability to cement afterwards and mechanically stabilize the bone. Unlike radiation, which has a real risk of inducing fractures, and that is depending on the type of radiation, whether it's multi-fraction radiation, uh, external beam probably has the lowest risk, but still has a risk. Single fraction external beam has a more substantial risk. And then SBRT, the reports out are between 11 to 39% of subsequent fractures. Wow. Saying that's why we have the ability to mechanically stabilize and we really don't eliminate future therapies. So I think the speed of relief, uh, obviously there's no radiation non, you know, there's no, unlike uh, 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 radiation where there are some tumors that are not as sensitive, nothing's going to survive a, a temperature increase of 60 degrees Celsius. Okay. Uh, I'm going to let Sonny speak to the combination therapy potential. Yeah. And Mike, if you took note there, Jason used the word huge three times in one sentence. I think you broke Donald Trump's record for using <laughs> the word huge in one sentence. <laughs> so I'll try and avoid that my explanation. You know, Jason covered that great, actually, you know, with radiation, uh, you know, and what sort of the drawbacks are. And I think fracture, like you mentioned, is the biggest, the biggest risk. Um, and the other is obviously 40% of patients who get radiation don't even get better, at least with conventional uh, radiotherapy. You know, I, I look at this from a, like a sort of a practical approach. Jason and I, I think have the same or similar approach on how we treat patients. And like he mentioned in the fracture patients, it's, you know, those who have a lytic lesion with an associated fracture, let's say compression deformity, the cement, you know, stabilization with ablation is really a, it really is and should be a first line therapy and radiation therapy can augment that for sure. But the reality is, unless you stabilize them, they will probably go on to fracture adjacent levels and they will not get significant pain relief by just radiation alone. In those patients who I'd say are not candidates, because it is important to talk about who may not be a good candidate, I think we, we tend to shy away from patients who have diffuse disease all up and down the spine, but they don't have really a focal spot that you can say, this is where the pain is. Those patients might be better for a wider, you know, net of EBRT and or, you know, biologic or bone stabilizing agents. And then you look at the patients who don't have compression deformities, but still have a lytic intrinsic fracture in the bone. Those patients in the setting of, say, oligomastatic disease, three, four less lesions, those patients would be good candidates for RFA and cement. And, and really in those patient population, we're trying to avoid a delayed skeletal event, you know, something like subsequent fracture or retropulsion or tumor extension posteriorly into the canal. And Jason did mention combination therapy. And what's nice about combination therapy is there is, although there is limited data, the data does suggest that when you offer RFA in conjunction with uh, external beam radiotherapy, that the response rates actually go dramatically from roughly, say, 60% to the 90, 90th percentile. And then you're, you get an improvement in the rapidity at which you get pain relief. So the combination therapy is very nice. You know, there is the, the real world reality that, like Jason mentioned, IRs are seeing, you know, less than 5% of these patients in their practice, say nationally. But 
if you can, you know, work closely with radiation oncology to offer that collaborative approach of simultaneously treating a patient, then you might be able to offer, say, a single fraction of radiation and then a single ablative and, and cement-related treatment and then offer the patient probably really the, the best chance for immediate and long-term success. Would you agree with that, Jason? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. It, you know, in fact, it also kind of serves a little bit as a practice building you know, right. methodology, if you're, if you're willing to have more of a consolidative approach using RFA with cementoplasty, like what we're talking about, followed by radiation, you know, obviously we're going to reduce their complications by eliminating their fractures and the patients are going to be better served with probably higher, and again, limited research, but higher pain, uh, higher pain relief scores and uh, better long-term lasting effects. So yeah, completely agree. Oh, it's like a great tool for practice building because you're not really competing with them. It's actually by doing combination therapy, you know, with the cementoplasty, you're decreasing their likelihood of getting a fracture afterward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think when you're stabilizing the bone, you know, especially in patients who have lytic lesions, Within that bone, obviously, there is some degree of instability, especially if the lesion is or the bone that's affected is at hinge points like T12L1, for example. And having the ability to stabilize that bone when you have tumor replacement in the virtual body is, is important. Um, it's very, um, I'd say we are fair under treaters of patients who have lytic metastases with, you know, intrinsic fractures within the bone. We're all looking for this massive compression deformity of the bone, but we don't have to wait until somebody loses 40% of height in their bone before we know that they're going to get an improvement uh, from a treatment like this. So, let's see. sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, just to add on to the sort of the, the, the rationale of under-treating, um, I think I, as an interventional radiologist, before I was doing a combination of RFA and kyphoplasty in the, in the, certainly at least in the spine, I think I was probably turning away more patients than I should have. So I would turn, you know, someone with a blown out posterior wall, I would be turning them away. But when I started adding radiofrequency ablation into the practice, it really actually, although, you know, many people get a little more nervous, it actually provided me a higher level of comfort in treating these patients. And, and Sonny and I both have great examples of patients with, you know, some components of epidural tumor and loss of the posterior wall, the vertebral body. And we still, you know, will routinely treat these patients as long as there's no neurologic symptomatology beforehand. Um, the rationale is, is that the ablation actually provides you more of a cavitary effect in that area so that you will have more of an even cement fill with less uh, leak into a critical area. Sonny, you, I, I believe you agree with me, but. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, what you said is perfectly on point. So let's take a second now and uh, kind of summarize, uh, you know, the patients that you're treating, um, you know, beginning with, you know, the primary indications and the goals of therapy, even though we've covered a lot of this already. Um, Sonny, do you want to take that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the, obviously the primary goal is to get patients out of pain, right? So to palliate these patients, they obviously have advanced disease. 
by nature of the fact that they have bone metastases. And our goal, our primary goal is get them out of pain and palliate them so that they can go on either live a good quality of life, oftentimes stay on their their systemic therapy, which many patients cannot tolerate because they're in so much pain that they don't want to tolerate their systemic therapy while they have, say, back pain or pelvic pain, et cetera. So that's the primary goal. And secondary goals are more about preventing a delayed skeletal event. And that's what we meant earlier by preventing that severe compression or retropulsion. Because, you know, it's interesting. We don't follow patients, right, with serial imaging who come in with your typical osteoporotic compression fraction. But if you do follow your oncologic patients, you will note that those patients who have lesions in the spine, when left untreated, they do end up going on to fracture. They do end up going with epidural extension or coming back with epidural extension in time. And those are the types of events we're trying to prevent as, as, a, as a secondary effect of the procedure. What are you looking for in terms of like size, location, ablesions uh, in identifying appropriate targets for ablation? So, you know, it, it, I don't really, there's really no size criteria or uh, what you're really looking for a lot of the most common thing that serves as an exclusion is a neurologic compromise. So somebody who has neurologic symptomatology, you know, once I get past that, as far as this system goes, I'm typically using this in combination with cement. So I am looking at an axial weight loading bone. So traditionally the sacrum, the TNL spine, you know, the entire spine. Um, but I, I use this quite a bit in the acetabulum. Uh, I think this is a great therapy in the acetabulum where you end up using large volumes of cement after you ablate. I don't personally use this in long bones because the advantage of cement is really almost, almost can be seen as a disadvantage because it does not have any torsional. Uh, uh, it, 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 although it's very effective with axial loading force and is not effective with torsional force and can lead to fractures. Um, the only other thing that I use for a patient, Sonny kind of already alluded to is I will treat occasional patients with multiple lesions, but I'm not going to treat somebody if they can't come into my clinic and say, I hurt here and here. Okay. So I need them to be able to localize where the pain is. Now, it's not always perfect. You know, a lot of these patients will get wraparound pain and our ER colleagues may have worked them up with a CT pulmonary angiogram to start with. And, and sure enough, it's actually, a, you know, a T5 met. But the bottom line is, is I, I want the imaging to kind of match the location of pain. If they just have diffuse pain, it's very hard to improve upon that. And we usually refer those to our radiation colleagues. Yeah, I would agree, Jason. And you know, so, and obviously there are some patients who we turn down just because they're surgical candidates. So some of these patients have such instability that they do need uh, fixation. And so it does happen where you get patients who are so advanced. In that case, obviously, these cases are important to consult with your spine surgeon and make sure that they're, you know, from a stability standpoint, that they have spinal stability. Um, but absolutely agree with Jason's methodology. And I think taking that approach really keeps, you know, your, your patient flow consistent. So the oncologist in the area, the radiation oncologist, the spine surgeon, they all know the kinds of patients you're going to put on the table and what your goals are for your therapy. How do you approach lesions with significant extra spinal extension? 
Yeah, so we, we both tend to say, you know, don't chase those extra spinal leaves okay. with bone ablation. I mean, it's called bone ablation for a reason. Uh-huh. Right. Um, but <laughs> it is, uh, you know, there's danger in that, right? So if you if you go sure. and turn on a probe, whether it's RF or any other technology, uh, and you, you know, turn that on, say, in the psoas musculature or somewhere else, you're going to end up having a problem because patients okay. are going to get result in pain from, you know, burning or freezing that tissue. The other is if you get very aggressive with lesions that get onto the neural foramina, while you could be a little bit more aggressive there, um, you definitely run the risk of getting exited nerve root injury. And, and you can use thermocouples and there are protective techniques that, of course, you can utilize. But I always make the comment that if you just treat the vast majority of patients who are at those, for example, um, you're going to have great results and you're going to make a real big difference uh, in, the, in these patients' lives. Yeah, to, to, I agree completely. To add to that, you know, the bottom line is everything comes back to what our goals were, which is what Sonny went over. And it's pain relief and preventing delayed skeletal events. So, you know, delayed skeletal events, when they occur, they almost always occur in the vertebral body, at least posteriorly. So, you know, really making sure that your ablation is effective posteriorly, in my mind, comes first and foremost. But chasing tumors that are, you know, in the paraspinal soft tissues, I find to be both ineffective and, and uh, sort of overzealous. And, and really the bottom line is, is there, there's data to support not chasing that. If you look at some of the older Akron studies, uh, we know that the, the larger tumor ablation did not res- result in better pain relief, but in fact, it was just ablation at the bone tumor interface, which if the posterior wall is blown out, that's, there's your bone tumor yeah. interface. Well, you know, you talk about, again, uh, delayed skeletal events, uh, you know, is, is there a role of, of using this for, you know, preventing that beyond just pain palliation? I mean, is there a role for prophylactic ablation of lesions at, at high risk of fracture? You know, as you long know, as you're including cementoplasty. Yeah, I think, Mike, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. And it is one that's probably not yet, to my knowledge, well answered because it's very difficult to stratify those patients. There are, you know, grading scales for uh, which, you know, fa- certain factors that would say increase the likelihood of instability of a lesion. For example, if that lesion were at a hinge point or if a certain percentage of the bone was replaced. Um, but because there's not necessarily a set guidance on it, a lot of it is left open to individual interpretation. And Jason, who's got the world of experience with this too, I'd love to get Jason what your thoughts are on that as well. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, there's there's my opinion and then there's the reality. And, and my opinion is, is similar to a surgeon who would be looking at something that's got an impending fracture. He'd be going and treating it. Um, I, I do think that certainly for certain metastases, some of these renal cells, you know, thyroid mets or, or, or other real vascular and or lytic lesions that really have a high propensity to go into fractures. I, I personally believe in, in sort of a, a, a approach that is very aggressive up front. That, then you step back and you look at the reality and what almost every payer will accept for an indication, and, and that's not one of them. So, so, you're, you're kind of put into a little bit of a challenging 
uh, location if you believe that that is uh, worthwhile, which I do, but agreed with Sonny that, you know, we don't really have good data for that. Not sure we'll ever get that as well. Okay. Uh, well, you know, it, uh, oh, one more question I wanted to ask, are there any circumstances after ablating a spinal lesion when you don't use cementoplasty? That's a tough one, Mike. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's a tough one. So, you know, it's funny you say that. So I, um, and I'll, Jason, I'll let Jason weigh in because he'll probably, I, I'm just guessing he's going to say definitely no. But um, I will say that uh, years ago, this is probably now six, seven years ago, uh, when I was doing ablation uh, in the spine, um, you know, with RF early on, probably seven, eight years ago now, but the... Um, indications that we use for cement were purely lytic lesions in older populations. You know, I, I can say that if you're going to ablate a lesion that's, you know, almost entirely blastic or nearly almost entirely blastic, and it's in a young patient, one would argue, is there really a role for cement? I don't know. Um, that being said, I think that it's, you're already there. There's no significant increased risk if you do it carefully um, after ablation. So I tend now to invariably always cement after ablation. Uh, Jason, can you come up with a situation in which you would not cement? Uh, since you, you, you already knew what I was going to say, definitely <laughs> not. Okay. Good stuff. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little dogmatic about that. Uh, I mean, so the answer to your question is, is I always cement and, and, and I do it because of the mechanical stabilization and, and it probably also provides, you know, Sonny, this is coming from your, some, some of the things that you talk about. I mean, there are different mechanisms of pain. There's the tumor pain coming from the cytokines and then there's the mechanical pain and, and even sclerotic metastases can have mechanical pain. Having said that, you know, one of the things I do, the, 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 the cases I actually now have learned to worry more about cement migration in uh, is those sclerotic cases, much more so than the lytic cases where I feel like I have a little more control. Sometimes in those sclerotic bones, it can come out a little more uh, forcefully when you're, you're putting it in. But in the acetabulum, sacrum, and uh, uh, the weight bearing axial skeleton, I always use cement. I guess when you're, I, I, the, with a few exceptions, maybe if I'm treating something down at S4, you know, a very thin part of the sacrum, I, I might just ablate that. Right on. Um, so, um, you know, one final series of questions I have is how and when you monitor the outcomes of the procedure. Uh, when do you start seeing these patients back in clinic? Yeah, like, so we, we tend to see them back two weeks after the procedure. I mean, in the clinical study, uh, the Opus 1 study, the patients were being assessed before that. But traditionally, we tend to see them back in two weeks. Because like Jason mentioned, similar to other uh, ablative technologies, you may get an increase in pain just related to edema in the first 24 hours from which we give patients sometimes an additional pain, pain medication uh, or steroid, for example, for the first 24 hours. But Nonetheless, or invariably, I guess their pain will significantly improve by the time you see them back at a week or two weeks. So just for convenience, we see them back at that point. And then following that, we tend to not see them back and we manage their imaging or whatnot that needs to be done through their medical oncologist. Jason, do you guys see them back at any other time point or different time? 
No, I mean, our touch points are almost identical to yours. We, the clinic called the patient the next day. And if they're still having pain daily until that starts to improve, we see them in two weeks. And then just like you, we don't order follow-up imaging unless we're worried about something or the patient has a new or recurrent pain. Um, we sort of tag along with the oncologist imaging, but we do request the patient's to let our office know when they're getting imaging so that that becomes an additional touch point, even if it's just an imaging touch point where we can see the, the patient's follow-up imaging. Yeah, Mike, the reason why that's important is because like if, if two things, one from the imaging standpoint, obviously patients are limited by their ability, one, financially to of course pay their co-pays associated sure. with imaging, but we want to make sure that we're not stepping on the toes of medical oncologists who may have imaging that their timing related to their systemic therapy. But from the clinical follow-up standpoint, invariably, if they're not better in two weeks, there may be something going on that you're not realizing. Oh, God. You know, it, it is a possibility, of course, albeit rare that you undertreated the lesion, but they do have metastatic disease. So they could have an, an adjacent lesion or a nearby lesion that's causing the pain. They may need an epidural injection or an exiting nerve root injection of block. So there are other things that I think are important that, you know, we don't want to take ourselves out of the whole treatment team just say, you know, I did this procedure and I can't really assess why else may have pain. And that will happen. And so if it does happen, I think it's important to see them back and, and make sure you can offer them some other treatment that they may need for palliation. That's great advice. Um, as far as the uh, advanced technical details of this procedure are concerned, I think that's probably beyond the scope of our discussion. But um, there are a couple of good options that I'll recommend to our listeners. Um, the first is the uh, Medtronic Osteocool course, which I took with Dr. Bagla. Um, the second one is uh, the upcoming conference stream. And I'm, I'm hoping Sonny can talk a bit about that. I've been to it once. I'm, I'm planning on going again this fall. Yeah, Mike, thanks so much. So we, uh, myself and Ari Isaacson, who you know from Chapel Hill, uh, have been running this meeting. I think this will be our eighth or ninth meeting uh, that we've run. And it initially started out, you know, the stream meeting, of course, the joke was then it was a prostate urine flow related meeting. Uh, but it's grown uh, beyond that because, you know, our audience, as you can imagine, that that's interested in doing prostate embolization is a very, I would say, you know, thought leader type of audience. And they're aggressive about bringing new procedures into their practice. So we expanded out to other embolization related topics that are associated with pain, you know, knee embolization, shoulder embolization. And it was a natural extension to say, hey, if we're covering pain, we should for sure cover ablative therapies. And so we are covering ablation uh, with respect to uh, bone and not necessarily soft tissue primarily, but with bone. And we have three great speakers. So Jason, of course, who you know, it, uh, probably has uh, some of the large experience in the world with, with spine-related uh, augmentation and ablation. Then we also have Dave Prologo, who's at Emory. Um, and he's got a lot of experience, especially with cryoablation. And we have Nick Currup, who's coming to us from Mayo Clinic, so he'll be speaking there as well. So the three of them will really round out a half-day uh, seminar. And that, there we're going to get into, um, like you saw at that uh, optical course, but here we'll be talking about taste-driven uh, methodology, how you approach a patient, who's good for radiation, who's good for one type of technology versus another um, and since they all bring different experiences, whether spine, pelvis, aftalma, et cetera, I think uh, it'll be a great discussion. And um, there's really not a lot of meetings that address this issue, I think, in depth. 
And so I think bringing together Nick, Chase, and Dave, I think the three of them, um, it should be a great meeting. So that's in September. Uh, the website is thestreammeeting.com. And uh, it's in Chicago, which is a great time to be in Chicago. And hopefully, um, you know, we're hoping and praying for a, a quick turnaround here with the COVID situation, as you know. And so uh, if all works out well, we are planning on moving forward. Um, we have run parts of the meeting remotely before, but we don't, we don't like to do that, obviously, if we can avoid it. If it's safe for everyone, then, uh, of course, we will uh, continue the meeting in Chicago. No, I think I'd be more upset about that getting canceled than SIR. Uh, no. <laughs> we'll just, you might, you might want to cut that one out of the, uh, cut that one out of the back to the podcast. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, it is, you know, what's nice about the meeting. I will say, and this is to no fault of any other meeting that when you limit a meeting to a hundred, say physicians, you get a small intimate group. It's on a weekend. People don't have to necessarily miss work. Uh, if they want to miss call, that's great. But if they don't necessarily have to miss work, um, it's in a, it's in a nice city and a nice time of year and you really get to connect with people. So I can tell you, like I, for example, got introduced to Nick, you know, I've met him at different meetings and whatnot, but really through Jason. And so you get this really good networking opportunity. And when you spend a weekend with somebody really learning about procedures they're doing and, and the meeting really only runs eight to five, you get to spend your evenings and mornings and breaks really talking to people and learning more in-depth things that I think you get at these massive meetings where it's hard to get a very detailed understanding of anything you're doing. And, and no one can take a procedure that they just learned about and get practical information, go home to their, their home native city and incorporate that into their practice without getting a deep dive understanding of the procedure. It's very difficult to do. So that's pro the primary goal of my NRI's meeting is to make sure that people can go home and really adopt this, this or any procedure we talk about into their daily practice. I couldn't agree more. And I had that specific experience when I went a couple of years ago. And so I'm thrilled to be coming back. Um, gentlemen, this was a fantastic discussion. I think we got a really good look at this. Is there anything else about uh, radiofrequency ablation of spine lesions that I didn't cover that you guys would like to, to mention? Jason, I'm good. I think we covered pretty much a, a wide variety of information. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I agree. I think we really got a good coverage of the information. I guess the only thing I would say is one of the things I learned throughout the course of the Opus One trial was when Sonny grew up, he took the little yellow bus to school. <laughs> yeah, see, Jason, because he's known me so long, likes to share a lot of personal stories. And I can, I can expand on that, Mike. You know, when I was a kid, I thought it would be really funny. I think I was in first grade or second grade and you take those standard, you know, standard elementary achievement tests, you know? Oh yeah. So I thought it'd be, I thought it would be really funny if I just put down A for all of <laughs> And uh, lo and behold, uh, when I was about to start third grade, um, my parents got a letter in the mail uh, and I think I was put in a, in a classroom um, that maybe I was, you know, maybe I could have been excelling a little bit more in regular classroom. So, but Jason, despite all things and I had all mistakes, uh, we have to learn to rise to the top and look where you are now. And these are the type <laughs> of details that you get to learn at an intimate meeting like stream <laughs> or, or on the back table podcast. Well, you guys, that was awesome. And thanks again to Medtronic for sponsoring this podcast. 
Check out Medtronic.com slash OsteoCool to learn more about OsteoCool radiofrequency ablation. Thanks again, guys. 